Good morning. Everyone hear me okay? Try to speak higher pitched. I hear that helps. So I'm very excited that AJ had asked me to preach this morning. I, uh, and uh, as he was sending me the, uh, the text and uh, the, uh, the idea of the direction that we were going as a church, it, it fell on what we're calling revolutionary truth. And so my sermon today is entitled, Five Requirements of Walking in Revolutionary Truth. And I know requirements isn't a word that we like in our, our, our cool Christian culture because it sounds legalistic. It sounds like there are things that you have to do, but ultimately there are. Because following Christ comes with dying to yourself, following the Lord Jesus, comes with dying to everything that is not of Him and everything that is of our flesh, as we'll look out earlier. And so I think, that, you know, I... I Went to a thesaurus, and I really tried hard to find a word that uh, was going to be different than requirement. I tried to make uh, Clay Gilbert um, proud and uh, have everything very succinct and well-organized for that, and I just could not find a word that did better than requirement because that's what it is. And so we're going to start this morning defining revolutionary truth. We're going to define revolutionary truth. Now, truth is easy. Without using the word in the de- definition, is it something that is real and it is actual in your life? Truth is something that is true. But revolutionary truth would be a truth that changes your life. It changes the way that you live. It changes the way that you look at the world. And so, even though we'll be in First Peter chapter 1, verses 22 through chapter 2, verses 3, I want us to start in John chapter 3 this morning. So, we're going to be starting at looking at a conversation where the Lord Jesus explains the revolutionary truth of the gospel to someone. So we're going to be starting in John chapter 3. Now, a lot, now, a little bit of background. A lot of you have probably heard this story. It's the conversation that took place at night between the Lord Jesus and the head of the Pharisees, Nicodemus. Nicodemus, as we're about to look at, was a leader of the Pharisees. He was at the tippy-tippy top of the Jewish faith. He was big man on campus. He was an incredibly important man, and he would have been brilliant, as we're about to see. And so he comes to Jesus in the middle of the night, realizing that Jesus truly is sent from God, because that, you know, up to this point was highly contested between the Jewish leaders, and it still was up until, up until their deaths. But as we see in verse 1, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Then verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's room and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel at what I have said to you. You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. 
Nicodemus then says in verse 9, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, You are the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you, you do not receive our testimony. If you have told, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I have told you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him might have eternal life. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we unpack the revolutionary truth of the one true gospel of the Lord Jesus this morning, that you would anoint me in your spirit, that it would not be my words spoken but yours, that I would die to myself, to my flesh, to my formal glory, and in all things look to lift you high, that we would leave here wanting to be changed by a revolutionary truth, that we would not simply have a head knowledge of what the gospel is, but we would imp- it would impact every aspect of our lives. Father, I pray this humbly as your servant. In the name of all names, Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. So our first point, I know AJ likes to preach one-point sermons, and I think that's way more effective But I'm a firm believer that every good sermon has five points. So my first of five is walking in revolutionary truth requires a face-to-face with Jesus. Walking in revolutionary truth requires a face-to-face with Jesus. Now we know from John chapter 1 that it explains that when we read our scripture, that when when the the word is read openly, that we hear the word of God. And so I believe that that comes through time in scripture, but that also comes through prayer and fasting. I believe that having that personal relationship with Jesus starts with scripture. I want us to start, as as we kind of look at that, I want to talk for a second about brilliant people, because Nicodemus certainly was one. I love listening and talking to people that are very, very smart. That's why I talk to myself all the time. But uh, I'm drawn, like whenever I I watch a movie, I always love the characters that are just not omnipotent in the way God's omnipotent, not omniscient in the way God is omniscient, but they just know so much. You know, you're you're Gandalf in Lord of the Rings, you're Dumbledore in Harry Potter. I'd say you're Yoda in Star Wars, but somehow he allowed the... uh, the most powerful Sith to ever walk the face of the universe to slip right under his nose in Jar Jar Binks. And so, it's <laughs> a little nerd humor. Um, but, so, but it is just so fascinating watching people that are just so smart out of your league talk. My wife and I are watching The Bucket List last night, and by that I mean I was watching it, and she was looking up uh, videos on uh, you know, Disney at Christmas time. But, you know, that's how we spend time. And Morgan Freeman's character in the bucket list is just so brilliant. Every, like, he knows everything. They're always quizzing him if you've seen it. Jack, you know, you know, from the scene in the garage where the guy's got the, you know, the fact book and he's trying to quiz Morgan Freeman and, and mess him up and he's just getting him right, right, right. Or, you know, when later on in the movie, him and Jack Nicholson, spoiler alert, they become friends and they, you know, they're off, you know, uh, in a foreign country and there's the Wheel of Fortune on or Jeopardy or whatever have you and, and Morgan Freeman's yelling the answers from the other room because he just knows, you know, not everything, but he's just so well versed in so many things and I'm so interested in people like that. 
And Nicodemus certainly was one. And so when we look at the conversation between him and the Lord Jesus, where he is met with a revolutionary truth, we should not make the mistake that we are dealing with an idiot. When he answers the question like this, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? We look at that and we're like, no, Jesus obviously doesn't mean that. But we are dealing with one of the heads of the Jewish faith. This man would have been smart. He would have had so many paths. You know, he would have had, in a lot of cases, multiple books. The entire penitent memorized from a young age. He would have grown up in the Jewish faith. And so this would have been a revolutionary truth that we as Christians today take for granted. And so I believe, and this is purely conjecture, that in this point, Nicodemus is going back into his mind of all the times that it talks about a man being born of spirit and water. And I think that he rests himself in Ezekiel chapter 36 when it walks through the Lord talking and Lord through the prophet is explaining people must be saved and that he will send his spirit. And I think this is what he is fighting through in his head when he is met with a revolutionary truth that he has to change. Early church historians write that Nicodemus was saved after the Lord Jesus' crucifixion. That also is purely conjecture. We won't know this side of eternity. But I like to think it was. Because I like to think that him, the same way Pilate, who, who those same writers will write, was saved after he met face to face with Jesus, was saved. Now, again, this is purely conjecture. But I do like to believe, and I think we should all like to believe that people got saved after they met with Jesus. But I believe that even if they were not saved, that for each of us here today, our faith starts with meeting with Jesus. But I want us to see, before we move anywhere on further, that truth and revolutionary truth are slightly different. A truth is... That, that Swiffer makes a mop. I don't know if y'all realize that. My wife and I bought one. They're amazing. It changes the way our kitchen looks because of that truth that Swiffer makes a mop. That is a truth. It is, however, not a revolutionary truth. Every aspect of our life has not been changed because our kitchen is slightly cleaner. And so, as we move forward at the revolutionary, life-changing truth of the gospel, let that impact every other passage that we look at today. Let Let that impact as we leave here today, the way we walk, the way we talk, the way we act and reason, the way we worship, be impacted by the revolutionary truth of the gospel. So now that we've looked at um, now that we've looked at John chapter 3 and a conversation, a face-to-face with Jesus, let us now turn to our main text, 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 22. I bought these really, really cool, colorful inserts for my Bible, thinking it was going to help me get places faster. The only problem is it came with six of them, so I never know which one is going where. (laughs) So we've seen 
that walking in revolutionary truth requires a face-to-face with Jesus. Now I want us to see in verse one, you know, chapter 1, verse 22, that walking in a revolutionary truth requires obedience. Verse 22, having purified your souls by the obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Obedience to this truth must affect the way that we live. We're going to look and see how the gospel, now when I use the term gospel, I'm using it in its literal sense, the good news, the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I know in, 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 in culture today, gospel means one of a thousand different things. We've got gospel center this, gospel center that. We use the gospel as it's a sales line in a lot of cases. But I'm using the term gospel as the good news of Jesus should affect the way we are obedient to him. When we walk in that truth, when we walk in the truth of the obedience of the gospel to the Lord Jesus, it should change the way that we live. Having purified your soul by the obedience to the truth. For a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. I want us to not lose track of this. And I want us to not leave here not realizing that when we walk in the truth of the gospel, when we walk as though we are Christians, that that changes everything. That is when, you know, when we talk with one another, when we act, when we reason, all that should be changed because we live to love one another, as the passage says. I was looking up why the relevance of sincere brotherly love was put in here, and I found a really interesting truth. It was walking through, one of the commentaries was walking through how love has the ability to change things. And I didn't find that incredibly, you know, brilliant at the time. I'm like, okay, yeah, when you love something, you change your attitude towards it. That's great. But it broke apart. It broke down every aspect of that love and every aspect of the way that we should be different because of love. Not only should we love what, what is good, but we should hate what is bad. And we should hate the things that, sin, that come to affect what we love. And that, you know, that you know, as a Christian, that resonated with me because I realized that I, I must love God and that calls me to hate sin. And that leads directly into our, uh, our third point. Walking in revolutionary truth requires a new heart. Walking in revolutionary truth requires a new heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of the imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. The gospel is the only... Alright, so I want to explain this for a second. One of my professors, who I love dearly, asked us a question in class one day. He asked if the gospel is still the gospel when it's not applied. And of course... Us being a room of people that appear, you know, strive to appear as intellectuals, walk through how if God is immutable and God is unchanging, then no, the gospel can't change, and so the gospel has to be the gospel, whether it's applied or not. And he asked us a very simple question. He said, is the devil saved? And we were all like, no. Seemed easy enough. And he said, does, does not the devil understand that Jesus is Lord? 
does he not believe that he died for the sins of humanity? And he walks through, does he not believe that he led a sinless life? Did he not tempt Jesus in the wilderness? He walks through everything that we would say is the gospel. And he said, but the devil's going to hell. And I realized in that moment after it had been spoon-fed you know, to me, as most of my revelations come, that he was right. That the gospel is only the gospel when it is applied to your life. And that should impact the way that we do evangelism, the way that we discipleship, the way that we love one another. Because someone can know all the right things. Someone can have a truth. Someone can know the truth of the gospel, but if it is not revolutionarily applied to their life, they're dying and going to hell. And so when you talk to, you know, your friend, your coworker, your family member, and you ask them, you know, you know, when you start to talk about spiritual things, probably after Thanksgiving dinner, you know, the two times a year that we do it, Thanksgiving and Christmas, um, and, we t- and we talk and they're like, no, I, I know Jesus is Lord. I, I believe he saved me from, um, from my sins. And we're like, good, then you're in heaven. Because that's all we really want to hear. But the gospel is only the gospel when it's applied to your life. It says here, since, being the, the therefore, being going back to, because you have, your soul has been purified by the obedience to the truth. So, since you have been born again, not of the perishable seed, but of the imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. It's saying, you, for this truth to be real in your life, you must be born again. The gospel must be applied to your life. You must walk every day in this revolutionary truth. Because your salvation must be founded in Jesus. Your salvation must begin, continue through, and end with the saving work of Jesus. If your salvation is Jesus plus your works... If your salvation is Jesus plus your family ties to the church, if your salvation is Jesus, hinges on Jesus plus anything, then your salvation is not from sin. Then your salvation is not real. I have a, uh, I guess it's a, a guilty pleasure. I, I, uh, I love to read uh, Winston Churchill quotes when I'm, when I'm, you know, bored or. When I've had a bad day and I just need something to take my mind off because I believe that Winston Churchill is the most quotable man in history. And sometimes he puts things in an eloquent way so you know that he is a talented wordsmith. And then there's sometimes where he just says things so blunt that I'm like, how is this the same guy? And I realize that, that what I'm saying right now is something that is to be said bluntly. I don't want flowery language that I do not really even possess to cloud what I'm trying to say. If your salvation is found in anyone other than Jesus, it is not a true salvation. And let and leave here knowing that. Leave here knowing for yourself, for your friends, for your family, for your coworkers, for your neighbors, and even for your enemies. That if their salvation is found in something other than solely the work of Jesus on the cross, then they need to be evangelized. Because walking in revolutionary truth requires a new heart. 
Back to what Nicodemus was walking through in Ezekiel, I think that it applies to what we're looking at right now because it talks about how the Lord will grant, will take away your heart of stone and replant it with a new heart. And both times in our passage today when it talks about a pure heart, a pure heart can only come with a new heart from the Lord. You cannot have a pure heart without Jesus. You cannot have a pure heart without the salvation that comes one and only from our Lord Jesus. And if that is the only thing we get from today, know that. That your purity comes from the Lord. That the pureness of your heart is a direct gift from salvation from the Lord. That you cannot make your heart pure. That no amount of abstaining from sin, that no amount of whatever have you, of tithes and offerings, of fastings, of prayer, of reading your Bible, is going to make your heart pure. The only way that you get a new heart is from the work of Jesus. Our fourth point, walking in revolutionary truth requires dying to one's flesh and its glory. Walking in revolutionary truth requires dying to one's flesh and its glory. Verse 24. Now this is, this is Peter quoting back to Isaiah. He says, All flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. I'm going to read that one more time. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of God, the Lord remains forever. As we already talked about, the truth requires more than a head knowledge. It requires a heart knowledge. And that is what this heart knowledge is. How many of y'all have ever known somebody or maybe been yourself I'm a, that, uh, that has met someone that's never grown out of their formal glory? I'm, I'm 27, so I, I graduated high school nine years ago. And my job now takes me back into my hometown a little bit more than I would like. And so I didn't get saved until after I'd already graduated high school. And so there are just times where I run into people that I that I used to know, and I'm just always, in, I, just, I just start apologizing when I see them and <laughs> stay apologizing five or ten minutes after they leave. And so, I, you know, I, I, so there are times where I, I see people that I used to know, and it's always, you know, for, in a lot of times, it's, it's just, oh, you know, how you been? Oh, you still hanging out with so-and-so? no. We kind of went our separate ways. Okay, well, we still get to you know, we still get together and you know talk about this and you know joke about that and you know you, could you get talking to people for a while? And so I realized that so many people, and that's not just my hometown; that's all of our hometowns. That can be all of us if we're not careful. Get stuck in the state playoff glory. You know, it's like that scene from Sweet Home Alabama when Reese Witherspoon comes in. Y'all act like y'all haven't seen it. Y'all are like, oh, I, I, that's not T-Vote at my house or anything. Ugh. So I can kiss you anytime I want. But so, <laughs> it's like that scene when Reese Witherspoon goes into 
her old stomping ground, and she, you know, and she sees all her old buddies, and they're still talking. They're shooting pool like they were, you know, 20 years before, and they're talking about, oh, you know, they're doing the recap of the state playoff final touchdown, and she realizes that they're still stuck in their formal glory, former glory. As a Christian, it is very easy for us to be stuck in the sins of our flesh the same way. We can come in contact with people that have never been regenerated, that don't have a new pure heart, and we realize that the glory, like, that just as the, um, the flower comes out of the grass, and, it, and, it be, and the, sorry, let me use words, the flower comes out of the grass, the glory from our old, uh, the glory from our flesh comes out. Because, you know, if we're not careful, we can easily glorify sin. We can easily want to kind of forget that we're a Christian and reminisce about the good old days. And that's what happens. When we don't let this revolutionary truth impact our life, we can easily revert back the same way a dog reverts to its vomit. Because we must die to our flesh in its former glory. I have a, uh, I summarized a Calvin quote because anyone that write, wrote back then couldn't write out their address in less than three or four pages. And so, flesh begets fleshly glory in places where the flesh is concerned. What this passage is talking about, it's talking about how our flesh can easily rear its ugly head in situations where it can. So, you, you know, the flesh being our sinful desire, the flesh being our sinful nature, can easily come back at times where we allow it to. But then he says in verse 25, but the word of the Lord remains forever. I think that that Peter is writing this to the exiles, and he's quoting back to, um, to Isaiah for the sole purpose of encouraging them under persecution, reminding them that Jesus is Lord. Because Isaiah is the, you know, the prophet Isaiah to us Christians would be most likely the, the most uh, prophetic prophet, if you will. To the Jews, they were different. Because we believe that Isaiah is written namely about Jesus, and they believe that it's about a Messiah to come. And so I believe that in that moment, he chooses to summarize that passage in Isaiah 40 out of striving to encourage them and reminding them that Jesus is still Lord. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And I think that's like him sending out a lifeline saying, hold tight. I know you're under persecution. I know you're fleeing being killed. But hold tight to this truth. And our, our, we're going to end. We're going to end in chapter three, verses one, two, and three, with our fifth tr- with our fifth requirement. So put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Walking in a revolutionary truth requires spiritual nourishment. So many of us 
have bought into the lie that discipleship isn't vital to the Christian faith. It took Nicodemus, one of the most brilliant men of the Jewish faith, to have a face-to-face conversation with Jesus and ask him to explain some some of the things that he was um, struggling with. But we think that going to church a few times a year and uh, getting a Bible verse daily app is sufficient for our, our, our spiritual nourishment. And I cannot explain how how terrible that is. I can think of three or, four, three or four people that have discipled me in my life. And I know when I, you know, the last few times that I've preached discipleship has been a huge part of, of, my, uh, of the passage that I uh, have been preaching on. And I think that's because it's a huge part of what the scripture teaches is important. So when Peter says in the first part of this chapter, so, that's a, that's a you know, it's, it's a but, it's a therefore, it's an if. It's always likening back to the passage before. So he's saying that so, if you have been saved, put away all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, all envy, and all slander. So he's saying so, if you have been saved, die to your sin. And long, like newborn infants, for the pure spiritual milk. Now, pure is being used the same way here as it is back in verse 22. It's the same concept of needing that pure new heart. So it says, pure spiritual milk. Spiritual milk that comes from Jesus. Spiritual milk that comes from the new heart. Because spiritual things can be bad also. I'm, um, how many... How many people have you know keep up with the Marvel movies? How many people you know the MCU and everything? All right, I've got a couple. That makes my, the last half of my sermon pretty rough. But uh, we see here how disciple you know in, in the movies you have two characters. You have a young character, you know Spider Man, and how he's really really new to being a superhero. And then you have the old character Iron Man, who's been a superhero for a while, and you see a discipleship role play out in their lives. You see how, in Spider-Man, how he is so desperate to get face-to-face time with Iron Man. You see how he'll go to great lengths and cause like the world a whole lot of trouble just to have nourishment, just to have discipleship. Now, of course, it's a Disney movie, so they don't talk about it like that, but that's what it is. He could have just as easily... Um, gotten nourishment and discipleship from the villain of the movie, and I think it would have made it a whole lot better, but Disney didn't ask me to co-write for him. But that's how it works in our own lives. If you are not being discipled by the Word, you are being discipled by the world. If you do not have somebody pouring into your life from the church, then you definitely have it from the world and you just don't realize it. Because what does it say? Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual for the pure spiritual milk. Infants require nourishment, they require sustenance, or they will die. They can't get it from their, for themselves. So they don't always worry about where it comes from because it's either that or starve. But for us, 
who are new Christians, we think we get to pick and choose. We think that we can be like, you know, I, I think that I'm going to, you know, I think I'm good with church for right now. I think I'm just going to do my own thing for a little while and then go back. Or we think that it's not vital to our life that we can just stay a newborn Christian for as long as it's convenient to us. And that is one of the great lies. I I struggle with the doctrine of carnal Christianity. I think that uh, in many ways it's led to a lot of the struggles that our our, uh, 21st century church struggles with today. Believing that you can be saved but not grow as a Christian. That you can have a relationship with Christ and he could be your savior but not necessarily your Lord. That Jesus can be your fire insurance salesman. You know, if he's real, I'm good. And if it turns out that he's not, I wasted a couple hours every other Sunday morning. If you are not growing in your Christian walk, you are in absolute disobedience to Christ. There is no other way to put it. If you are not striving after the pure spiritual milk of the Lord, then you're being disobedient. Because walking in revolutionary faith requires spiritual nourishment. I was sharing the gospel with uh, one of my good friends uh, when we were, you know, I guess 21, 22. And he was one of those guys that was still living in his formal, the, the former glory, still living in the glory of the flesh. And I was talking about why it was so important to have Jesus. And he was, you know, and he told me that he had Jesus. And I'm like, well, I, I can't tell. And he said, I'll, I'll never forget. He said, I have Jesus already. Why would I need to know him more? And that, that hit me hard because in that moment, I knew without a shadow of a doubt that he was lost. Because how could someone have a relationship with Jesus and not want to fall deeper and deeper in love with him? He died about two years after that. And so I'm, I, I know the truth. It was the first funeral I ever did. And I remember it's the, the, so many people telling me that the most difficult funeral you'll ever do is for a lost person. And that was true. And so if you believe these, you know, some form of these five requirements of walking in a revolutionary truth, then you must know that to be a Christian requires being poured into and to pour into others. When you meet a guy that's married and he ta- you, know, you talk about your wives and, you know, you ask him what his wife does. Like, ah, I don't know exactly what she does at her work, but I don't know. It's got something to do with this. And you're like, oh, well, what, uh, what do y'all do for fun? Well, she does this and I typically do that. I know y'all are thinking of me watching the bucket list last night, but that was a fluke. We always watch what my wife wants to watch. But so, 
when you're talking with a husband and he's going through all these vague understandings of his wife, you, you know you ask the question, does he really even know his wife? But when it comes to Christianity and you talk to somebody about the Lord and they're like, I, I don't know, I think God kind of works like this and sometimes, but I'm not so sure. I think I'm saved, but then there are times where I don't know if I do enough good things. You know you ask yourself the same question. Do they really even love the Lord? And that comes from disregarding the need for spiritual nourishment in our lives.